What's up, everyone? I hope you're having an amazing day. Welcome back to the Inner Voice Podcast. I'm your host, Travis McKenzie. Today's conversation is with Katie Bolling, VP of Sales at Ingamba, a boutique luxury travel company that specializes in cycling travel to Italy, Portugal, and the US. Given the current state of the world, the travel industry has been decimated. And it's not just the operators like Ingamba that suffer. It's the vendors and small businesses that they support that are also on the brink of collapse. As expected, Katie brings a positive attitude and perspective to the situation and talks about some of the initiatives that her and her team have implemented to connect with their clients from afar. Katie also shares a beautiful message about the work that she did with World Bicycle Relief, providing access to bikes for the citizens of Sri Lanka, rural Africa, and other places in need. Because of their increased mobility, they now have access to things like clean water, healthcare, and much more. It's a much needed reminder of our privilege, and she hopes that our current experience of limited access will shine a light on the important work that World Bicycle Relief does in those nations. Thanks for joining me for day nine of the I'm Curious to Know project. I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I'm very pleased to have Katie with me, Katie Bowling, who's the VP of Sales for Ingamba. Katie, it's fantastic to have you. Uh, how are you going? I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. But yeah, I'm based in, I'm in Colorado and we've got sunshine today and I was able to get in a Zwift ride and an outdoor ride. So, so doing well. There you go. Obviously, we're all facing our own unique set of circumstances here during this global pandemic that we're facing. But one industry in particular that's been really hard hit uh, is obviously the travel industry. Before we talk about that, I'd love to give you the opportunity to share a little bit about what Ingamma does and, and the work you do and the trips you put together and give us an idea of, of what you guys provide. Yeah, I'm with, with Ingamba. Um, for those of you that don't know what we do, we specialize in bike trips in unique parts of the world, mostly Europe and, and the U.S. And our founder, his name is Joao Correa. He was a professional rider. And upon retiring, he had lived and trained in a little town called Lucky in Tuscany and um, decided you know, to try to bring the dream of what it, what, what it might be like for a, a pro to a rider to the everyday rider. So that was about 10 years ago. And Ngama has been hosting bicycle trips ever since. And yeah, to your point, Travis, um, the travel industry has been hit hard by this. We're, we're a small, we're a fairly niche company and a, tight, a very tight-knit community. So, you know, it's been hard, but it's, there's also been encouraging moments and really positive moments. And we have a tight-knit community, as I mentioned, and it's been, it's been neat to continue to, to bring that strength and that family atmosphere to life in this in this obviously very challenging time for all of us. I've heard some really wonderful stories about how Joao came up with the idea and uh, you know the beginning stages and some of the first trips. I'd love to have you share some of that history and, and share some of the folklore around how the trips came together in the first place. Yeah, and obviously he'd be an excellent person for you to connect with as well. So maybe a, maybe a future guest for you. But I think the the way that the story went, and and perhaps Joel will have the opportunity to share it himself. He was with Ted King and kind of winding down his his career with the Cervelo Test Team, and and said, "Man, wouldn't it be cool to ha- have a group of a small group of people come to Lucky, and I can share this town and this place, and do riding, and treat them to inside view of what it is to be a pro cyclist." And from there, he sent out a tweet and four people um, 
you know, said, yeah, call me in. And I think a few months later, probably they were all unlucky and shared this week together. And I think from there, people saw that and, you know, asked him, when are you going to do that again? When are you going to do that again? And, you know, originally, I think he thought it would be just a one-time thing. And then, okay, I'll do it again. And a couple of few trips down the road that I really want to give a crack at this, um, left the corporate world. I think at the time he was with LinkedIn to pursue this dream. And the original name of the company was Fat Man Tours. And he can share that story. But yeah, now 10 years later, here we are. And I've been formally with the company within Gamba for a little over two years, Uh, really became involved when I was with World Bicycle Relief. And also coming from the background of someone who has really experienced and traveled a lot of the world. Maybe, maybe a lot to some people, oh, still a little bit to me because I have such wanderlust and passion exploring. Uh, my first trip to Lucky was part of a World Bicycle Relief trip in 2015. And I arrived in, in Lucky, a very small town by nightfall and arrived at our inn, which is called the Borgo Lucky and uh, owned and managed by Ngamba and a small tight-knit group of people there. And I just remember hearing like laughter and glasses clinking and this just warm aura. And I knew that I had found something really magical. And I've been obviously quite blessed and grateful to be part of the story there. Well, I had Caitlin, Caitlin Looney Landisberg on the show a couple of days ago. She started Sufferfest Beer and she described the beginning of her business as a happy accident. And it sounds very similar to that with Joao and Ted and they're riding and having coffee and a beer at night. And all of a sudden they're like, yeah, let's try this. I think that's really a really fun beginning to the, to the story. Obviously there's, there's your business. Uh, There's many businesses that are impacted by this, but I've often thought, and I gave it some thought around the small hotels, the restaurants you frequent, the hotel, you know, the, the places, the coffee shops that you go to on these trips, these people rely on summer business. They rely on, the business of people coming and traveling to these places and experiencing them. And they're going to struggle this year. Tell me a little bit about that. How are you staying in touch with some of those vendors and operators that you work with in in these places in Italy and Portugal and other places that you travel to? Right. Yeah. So as I mentioned, like Lucky is kind of our spiritual home, if you will, and where we do, you know, again, it's a very small town in the heart of Tuscany between Florence and Siena. I believe there's about 35 residents there on an annual basis. Very small town and wonderful community. And obviously that's a country that's been hard hit by the pandemic. And obviously just, you know, kind of embracing people at a time like this is really important, just staying in touch with them. We had an all team meeting yesterday and it was just nice to hear Inga's voice who kind of runs our, our in there. And I feel like we're all obviously all in this together. We're all making sacrifices for the many. Staying healthy is the most important. Unfortunately, all the people that we know in that town are safe. And then, as you mentioned, we're quite active in Portugal. You know, Joao is Portuguese and the majority of our team, our guides, mechanics, Swan years, a lot of our office team and accounting and design are in Portugal. And Fortunately, Portugal has really had a positive experience the past few months in terms of minimizing the, the impact of the pandemic. I, th- I think real recently kind of NAST um, listed as like the number three place, safest place in the world right now. Right. But our team is quite small. And as you mentioned, like we're visiting a lot of communities along the way uh, during our trips that are also small. And it's we're, we're a link in the chain, right? So mm-hmm. we're all really do. In, the, in this together. And obviously on our business, you know, our team is greatly looking forward to hosting people again, and then bringing that business back to the, the, the operations around us. And I remember a few years ago, a couple of us decided we wanted to have a 
stop for a Superbach in Portugal and kind of looking in the in the doors and seeing who had one and you know what have you. So this is just really impacting all business sizes and perhaps more close to home is the are the the challenges the small businesses are facing around the world. You're one of the most positive people I've met and had the the chance to talk to and engage with. So I'm assuming that you're staying positive, you're keeping a positive vibe, you and the team are staying positive, but I know it's probably really hard. What are you doing to kind of keep the hope alive and keep the dreams alive and keep that positivity? And how do you, you know, foster that on a day-to-day basis? First of all, with like the Ngama community, you know, we're a tight-knit group. We're quite active on Zwift. You know, we've been doing a few few rides each each week and it's really great you know like this morning we had a at a ride and I was on with Eros Poli and Manuel Cardoso and Bruno Pires they're three of our guides Eros obviously um, mo- most beloved you know one of the most beloved figures in Italian cycling and then Manuel and Bruno both Portuguese national champions and we had a number of clients you know that we we've gotten to know well over the years riding with us and then a host of new people around the world. So I feel like being part of that very, very strong global cycling community right now in that game and what Zwift is offering yeah. has also been like a really important part of this time for, for Ngamba. Eros and I coined the phrase, um, apertivo anytime, you know, he's willing to really have a drink with, the, with our, <laughs> with our community at 11 PM, his time, just to make it work for happy hour, our time and getting some of our guests together and our close groups together over, over happy hour has been quite encouraging. And then similar to what you said, like with, with Joao and Ted, like having a cup of coffee and lucky and putting this dream down on a napkin. I feel right now, a lot of us are holding tight to those things that we're passionate about and bring us joy. And a lot of it is, is quite simple and we can make that environment work in the current time. I I love the movie Shawshank Redemption. I, I think a lot of people do and, you know, get busy living or get busy dying. And this is a time period where we're making, all making adjustments and sacrifices and obviously grateful for those who are on the front lines and still make those small choices each day. And, um, having the Ngamba community be part of that still it has been has been you know humbling and uh, I'm grateful for the group we have. I've also had the pleasure of meeting Eros. So Tom Fowler, another uh, great friend of Ngamba, a friend of mine, invited uh, a group of us to dinner with Eros in uh, in Vancouver when I was living there at the time. To say that he loves a glass of wine and a story would be an understatement. Um, that was a really memorable night for me to to experience that. So it just goes to show that community that you are fostering. I had Duke Stump. So uh, Duke was a, um, a boss of mine at Lululemon yesterday. He was on the show and he talked about culture. He talked about building culture uh, and building a business based on culture rather than just growth and numbers and those type of things. And I think that you guys do that really well. You do foster a culture of community. You've talked about tightening it a number of times. That's not cliche. It actually happens within your organization. And I think that's hats off to yourself, hats off to the rest of the team for being able to create that environment for people to feel like they're a part of of your operation and a part of your culture. A couple of days ago, we had, a, actually it was yesterday, we had like kind of an all team meeting. And um, obviously there's people calling in from the US, Portugal, Italy, Dubai, um, Madeira. And there's a little bit of a language barrier in our team. I think there's about 25 of us on the call. And the, and the, and the Zoom officially ended but I would say over half of us just kind of stayed on and you, you can't necessarily like have that chit chat when it's the, the, there's a language barrier, but we all care deeply for one another. I think that's something that's also one thing I'm really grateful for, for the group. 
And you mentioned like the dinner with Eros, obviously food and gatherings are a really important part of our culture in Ngamba and our trips are, they're really about riding, but they're also about togetherness. And a lot of that time shared at the table is equally, people are invested in that time, you know, whole, wholeheartedly in the food. And yeah, Joao is tough to keep up with it and Emil and, and, and Eros with his wine, but we really love that togetherness and one of the other things that we've been doing throughout this time if one were to visit in Gamma Pro and look at our journal there's some recipes you know quite grateful for Matt Acarino he's a great supporter of the brand and a lot of people know his name in food and cycling in San Francisco and that's been positive you know hearing a lot of people cooking and spending time in the kitchen is kind of an extension of Ngamba and that visualization everyone around the table how have you personally been able to put your own DNA and spin on the trips? Obviously, there's trip designers and Joel probably has a really big impact on that and the guides play their part. But how have you personally been able to kind of put your imprint on the organization and the, and the trips and the experience since you started with the brand? I really love community building and building connections. And, you know, even throughout this, the past few months, I've been able to kind of connect in Gamba people that I feel would get along well or, you know, finding finding and shaping trips where I feel, okay, this these couple of people would enjoy going on a trip with them. I think, you know, I'm able to do a few trips per year and I and I am grateful for any chance to get into the over to Europe and and meet people and kind of see what's, you know, bring it to life, right? And that the enjoyment of getting to know someone that's interested in a trip and helping them pair to a trip and then being with them on the trip is something I I'm really grateful for when I have that opportunity and sometimes friendships develop. But I do love the time that I'm able to visit the communities um, in North America or, you know, like where where our clients live and, and spend time in their community and build connections with them and do a local ride and grab a beer and a coffee. Yeah. And, and so I feel, you know, in the time that I've been here, I've been able to do a lot of that. Obviously, that's on hold right now and miss it quite a great deal. You know, bringing to life that Angama spirit that people feel hopefully experience on the trips that are a little bit on this side of the pond. You do do some trips in the US. I know that the business is mainly focused on Europe, but you do do some domestic travel. Do you think that will be something that you'll um, put a little bit more emphasis on now, given that people may not have the ability to travel overseas or travel to Europe as freely as we potentially have in the past? You know, we're quite nimble and small. So that's a benefit of being a small company is we can also look and say, okay, how can we best serve our clientele and where and when and you know what have you so certainly looking to do some more domestic programs potentially this summer we'll see we'll see what see what happens and then we do have trips as you mentioned in the fall we do a program in Healdsburg so hopefully that will still happen and who knows maybe a an opportunity to expand on that at the end of the year we run trips with fairly small groups so our average size of our trip is somewhere between eight and 12 guests. So operating in a pretty small environment and, and given, you know, the current situation and trying to be respectful of, you know, large gatherings and what have you, I feel that that's going to be a draw to what we are able to offer. I have a feeling that, that experiences like Ngamba are going to be even more sought after eventually. You know, once we get past the, past all of this, I think that people are going to realize that seeing the world and getting together and doing the things they love and having adventures and, and experiences are, are even more valuable than they were before because we all have all spent so much time now in lockdown or quarantine or in our communities that we're going to want to spread our wings a little bit and go and explore and have experiences. 
I, I would totally agree with that. And I've been really find it to be kind of lovely, the amount of um, that, that message that I'm receiving from people on our side as well. Like both new, new guests who have reached out and said, you know, I've always dreamed of doing a trip with, with Ngamba and, now I realize I want to, you know, now is a good time to really start focusing on that dream because no one, you know, you never know what tomorrow is going to bring. Right. And yeah. then at the same time, like obviously our and very engaged community is looking forward to coming together again and also supporting us. You know, we're very humbling to receive notes from people, you know, say we're, we're here to support you and can't wait to, to be able to travel with you again. Just like the purity of the experience, right? And realizing yeah. during this time, like all these little things that really are important to us and that fuel our soul. And we do an exceptional job on celebrating those parts of life. So I'm one of those people that, you know, arrives at the airport with plenty of time to just like experience the human drama and just observe people. And I, you know, I love going to airports and getting a meal and watching and that lovely feeling of anticipation when you're going somewhere new and it's something not to take for granted, right? Well, you and I are the complete opposite on that front. I arrive with uh, 33 seconds to spare. Um, and I'm always the guy that's just like looks flustered and like they're going to miss their plane and is running through the airport. So you're probably watching me going, look at this guy. <laughs> well, I think my least favorite in the world is the feeling of being rushed. So, um, you know. Well, we can agree to disagree on that. <laughs> I want to talk about this because you you mentioned to me earlier that this isn't really the first time you've been through something like this. You were in the travel industry when 9-11 happened. And, um, you know, you, you, you told me a story of how that business you were in kind of rebounded and regrouped and, and come back to life. But I'd love to get a kind of a snapshot from you of, you know, what that experience was like the first time around when travel was severely impacted. I was fortunate. I was able to study abroad in college and kind of always have, have dreamed of experiencing and traveling the world since I remember, you know, since I was a little, little kid. And so I did that. I traveled, you know, studied abroad. I love that experience. And after I graduated in accounting and finance and I decided that I wanted to do another trip before I lined up a formal job. I worked at Target in Minneapolis as an analyst, but I took a loan out and went backpacking in those few months between graduation and starting that job. And it was during that trip that I thought I really need to do more of this. So I, I, I went to work at Target for a year, saved up all my money, and then I left for about a year and a half and, and roamed, roamed the globe. And when I got back from... Um, that last leg of that trip, I had a snail mail letter from a friend of mine that I'd studied abroad with. He lived in Chicago and it was just this cutout of a new travel company, .com, that was launching in Chicago that was funded by National Geographic and a, and a lot of the large private investment companies. And I saw that article and I thought, I'm driving to Chicago and I'm going to get a job there. I did that and I wound up in Chicago and it took me about nine months, but I was hired at iExplore, the, the adventure travel company in the accounting department. And a few months later, you know, 9-11 happened. Our top selling destinations were Egypt, Israel, Jordan, small ship cruises to very adventurous parts of the world. So really the bottom fell out. And at the time there was about a hundred of us working there, 75 or a hundred. And we were supposed to close on a round of financing of around three to $4 million on September 12th. And obviously that didn't happen. So we kind of made it through those couple of days following 9-11. And then the following week, 
we are all laid off. I, I think I went traveling to the Netherlands for a few weeks just to kind of resort myself. Am I going to see in Chicago? What am I going to do? And a few months later, the CFO there called me and said, I'd love to hire you back. I'd like to start a software company with the name of the kind of secure bridge loan, would you be willing to return and I can, you know, train you and pass this job on to you. And I was very grateful for that chance. And so that's what happened. And I worked with the CEO and a very small number of us to kind of see what if we could rebuild the company. In those few years, we did a lot of armchair traveling, like there was no industry money for familiarization trips. But I just remember hunkering down as a community and helping to rebuild the tourism that had fallen off kind of a cliff. I, I think it was really a warm experience to be able to see the, the world kind of regain its footstep in international travel, especially adventure travel to, to destinations where their tourism had completely been decimated and rebuild it. And knowing now we're in a situation where there's going to be a lot of I think, really cool programs around rebuilding tourism. What lessons will you take from that experience that you'll be able to implement into what you're doing within Gamba? Like, you know, if you've been scratching the archives in the mind of, okay, what can we, what can we put in place? What are the things that we can do that you've, that you've been through before to, to help regrow? Yeah, some of it I think will be around, and obviously this is a very, this is an extremely different experience than 9-11, but it's somewhat mm-hmm. terrible in that fallout of the travel industry in different ways, but in those couple of few years after I explored, it was really at, at I explored, it was very nice to work with those international tourism bureaus. So working with various countries and regional bureaus as well, and the, the programs and the money that was redirected towards building tourism was, was really positive. And I think the same thing is going to happen here. You're seeing a little bit of that, like even with Sicily doing some unique things to drive domestic tourism. So that'll be, I think, quite neat to follow. And then the resiliency of obviously like people who are passionate about their business and want to band together, you know, and everything from working with Matt, who's giving us some insight to recipes and all of that, like he's got a business as well and he needs to rebuild it. So I feel, you know, that kind of locking arms mentality is definitely going to be part of the future. I've got this general sense of kindness. I feel like people are more open to share. People are more open to connection. They're more open to help each other. I feel like there will be so many positives that will come out of this. Obviously, there's some some horrible things that are still happening and and, uh, we're still in flux. I I have a general sense that we're all going to come out of this uh, more connected as a human race. And I think that's going to be a positive that we can all share in. We're really all in it together. It's not like any one person or group has further insight. It's a very unique spot, I would imagine, you know, in our lifetime in recent history where everyone has compassion and understanding for what everyone else is going through. There Mm -hmm. there hasn't been necessarily a time like that that's relatable. And, you know, my children are 14 and 9, and particularly like my nine-year-old, I've had to tell her a few times, like, this is my first time going through this it's it's interesting through the nine-year-old like she's a little competitive and at the start of this she, she kept asking do you think anyone's doing social distance as well as we are and um you know then you watch like the movies and the videos yeah. some of it's just kind of overwhelming in terms of like emotions of the heart right yeah. seeing seeing that wave of humanity in such a, a beautiful way 
what are those conversations you're having with your kids? Like our kids are young. My daughter's three. Our, our son's almost four months. So my daughter talks about the virus. She doesn't, I don't think she necessarily understands, but your kids are older. So there's probably conversations or thoughts that they're having that you're having to reconcile and, and share insight with them. My, with my son, he's 14 and he's kind of, uh, he's been focused on getting his homework done and all of that. And then he's enlisting himself in like all sorts of projects around the house. So he's at a very different age and he understands the news. It's really the nine-year-old. I think she's in a, maybe that six to 11 age group where it's kind of difficult to grasp everything that's happening. I've, I've noticed that she wants to be closer to me. Um, I, I try not to be gone. You know, even my bike rides, when I go outside, I try to be close to home, you know, that feeling of like, there are children and it's our duty to pr- protect them and a real, you know, instinct, I'm sure for all parents out there and being close to home. And she's in that age where she wants that feeling of safety, considering the confusion that's going outside. But at the same time, you know, like the, the time I travel a substantial amount and I, and I love that. But when I'm home, I'm usually really trying to be present at home. But this has been an extended extension of that. So yeah. I've take long walks with my son and he'll ask, let's go further. And, and he drove into Denver with me to pick up some Cinco de Mayo food for, for a little, just kind of fun celebration here. He asked me about music when I was growing up and I ended up telling about mixtapes and like what we had to do to like listen to music. And so, you know, you just realize like time slips by. We'll never get this time again. Like we'll never, you know, you talk about not traveling. I, you know, the same, I can't remember the last time I was home for eight weeks in a row or nine weeks in a row. And it's just been so refreshing just to have the, those moments and not have to worry about where you need to be because this is the only place you need to be. And just being where your feet are has been an amazing opportunity that I'm super grateful for. One thing that I noticed and something that I try to really stay stick with outside of this current time is when I ask people how they are, oftentimes, you know, the quick answer is a sigh and oh, I'm so busy. A lot of it is busyness that we create that doesn't necessarily need to be there. So, you know, a recalibration of time and energy. And, you know, I mentioned this, this call we had with, with our team, Eros is at his little cottage with his wife, Michelle, in Venice. And behind his screen, there was a little bike with a picnic basket and a bottle of wine. I was like, man, like Italians, like they just look like yeah. they're in tune with like these things that sometimes we maybe see as only available in our imagination, but we can live like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good time for all of us to kind of reconvene in terms of how do we reshape ourselves for the better going out of this. You did allude to uh, World Bicycle Relief. You you spent quite a bit of time there. From what I can gather, really had a mate an amazing impact on that um, on that brand and that that company or that not for profit. How does that experience sit with you? And then now, like obviously, Ingamba is a big fundraiser. You do the the World Bicycle Relief trips. Tell me about that connection and tell me about how meaningful that is to you and the work that you were able to do there. Yeah, it's a it's a huge part of my life. And I've been fortunate like that. I, I spent 10 years at World Bicycle Relief. And for those of you perhaps listening, it's an organization that's dedicated to distributing bicycles into rural parts of the world where bicycles can be used as critical access to education, job opportunity, and healthcare. I come from an Ironman background and always did some humanitarian-based fundraising as part of that. And when I went to Hawaii, I decided I wanted to do something a little bit larger. And at the time I was living in Chicago and I learned about this infant organization that was distributing bicycles into Sri Lanka after the tsunami. And I thought, 
that's a very worthwhile cause. And and the cool thing about World Bicycle was that the infrastructure in terms of designing the bicycles themselves to ensure that they're the right bikes for the community. And at the time, I was the first person that had kind of come to them and asked to do a fundraiser. And I, I remember writing like the founder's name is, is FK Day and his brother's Stan, they're, they're the founders of Stan, but I said, dear FK, I'd like to do a fundraiser for your organization. And he wrote back and at the time you couldn't really even do a fundraising page. So after Hawaii and when I realized really nobody in that Ironman environment had learned about World Vice Relief, I, I said, you, you know, you could, could consider hiring me and we could start a grassroots network. And that happened in 2007. And then, yeah, I spent, you know, spent 10 years building that organization. I think strategically, it was a huge confidence builder for me that being there from the ground up and seeing where it was able to go to, it was a lot of work. And I think, you know, a couple of times people have said to me, fundraising's easy and kind of look at them. It's very difficult, especially in the humanitarian sector. It's very cool. And around 2013, Joao had approached World Bicycle Relief about what he wanted. He saw as an important element to Ngamba. And then we started working together on that partnership. And so it was, it was really neat that I was able to meet a lot of the Ngamba community and have that you know, experience on a trip that kind of led me where to where I am today. But I think one thing that I really focus on and I think about every day during this period is we all now know and have compassion to what happens when access is cut off and that yeah. the jobs and shopping and schools. Like we have this shared global compassion. And that's the story of everyday life in rural Africa where there are so many barriers to reach school, even access to health care, to reach a good market, to work and receive an income. So my great hope right now is that there's going to be more understanding of compassion and interest in supporting their, their work going forward. And obviously the Ngamba community that's involved with World Bicycle Relief has been very vocal in this time and um, listening to what World Bicycle Relief is doing in, in Africa right now for COVID prevention. But um I think the long-standing opportunity for all of us to have greater compassion for access is is pretty um, alive right now. Tell me about the experience of going into these communities and providing bikes and seeing people's lives being changed right in front of your eyes. First of all, I've got my like Pinarello F10 behind me, right? And we all know and love that new bike day, right? There's hardly anything like it for it for those of us who enjoy cycling as the sport and hobby, and then multiply that by a thousand. The energy is indescribable at a distribution. I've been able to, I've been fortunate to be able to attend bicycle distributions in, in a few parts of Africa and, and Colombia. The anticipation and what it means to these communities when you're bringing 200 bikes to ensure that girls have an equal opportunity to finish their education and seeing everybody gather for those distributions with their best clothes on, clothing on, like dresses and songs and poetry, the stories about how the bicycles will truly, truly change lives. It's, yeah. you know, it's unfortunate that one thing that I used to say is like, it's just, you can't, you know, just kind of plop yourself into real Zambia and have that experience, but it's something that I carry with me every day. 
yeah, I, I, I love that story. I, I'm, I'm so proud of you and the work that you were able to do to, to provide access to, the, to those folks. Yeah. yeah, and I think it shows we're all connected because I believe what, how we originally connected, Travis, was through Jordan Rapp, who, you know, was obviously very dedicated to, to World Vice Relief and I think that you became involved with one of the fundraisers. So it was always a joy to be able to go to those distributions and say so many people care about your well-being. Who can't be here and, and don't have this opportunity to experience this in person. The high percentage of the work at World Bicycle Relief is really dedicated to mobilizing girl students and ensuring that girls around the world have equal access to opportunity. I, I was a voice for them, so it's been an important reminder to myself to be the, vo- the absolute best for my, myself as well, because not everybody, not everybody has this type of life where they're, they have choices and, you know, I have that tattoo passion on my wrist where people can, where I've been able to like really forge my life around passion versus need. How does that show up in your day-to-day now? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think particularly in this times, like in, in the current situation is just finding, finding that joy and motivation and reminder that not everybody is as fortunate and your and your world is, it's relative to what you've experienced. And I've been fortunate to have that insight to what life is like in some pretty rural parts of the world where there's this high degree of need. I'm reading a book right now called Atlas of Happiness that kind of goes around the world looking at different countries and kind of echoes around happiness and quality of life. And I feel like there's some real substantial merit to, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of the experts say like somewhere, once your basic needs are met, so for a U.S. that's around a $50,000 per year where you have a roof over your head, food, you know, what have you, then there's no, like, there's no proof that happiness increases based on, you know, monetary income. Mm-hmm. So I have those needs met. And then all of the joy that I find in life mostly comes to experience and whether it's creating like experiences in the home right now that we're all doing right in our neighborhood and our, you know, street or apartment or, you know, what have you versus the fulfillment that I get a lot when I'm traveling, but that's, it's all essentially like self created i'm a big fan of shauna core and i've read the happiness advantage over and over from front to back side to side and it, it really to me talks about how you know people assume they're going to be happy if they get that promotion or they buy the new car or the new watch or the new bike or what have you that's going to bring them happiness but it's actually not it's not the case and that's what you describe it, it there's opportunities once your basic needs are met that your happiness and your joy can can come from many different forms. Do you think you're a naturally a happy, joyous, passionate person, or is it something that you kind of have to remind yourself and there's a practice that you go through to to continue to bring that up in your life? Yeah, I feel that some of it's pra- practice. I have always been mostly rooted in passion ever since I was small. So I think that's just like a core fundamental part of my life. And I've been fortunate to be able to follow it and kind of live it and try to bring it I think, you know, like there's that book, like, you know, you either care a lot about something kind of all in or nothing. The things that I'm passionate about, I really try to pour myself into and that pretty, pretty joyous in itself. I'm excited to hear your answers to these questions. As I mentioned, I asked three questions at the end of every show and I'm going to launch into them now. I'm very excited to hear your, hear your answers. Um, What's one thing that's changed for you during this isolation period that you really want to keep once we go back to this new normal? So I've been reading in the morning and reading at night the reading in the morning is a nice part of a a newer part of the routine during this time because typically i'll wake up and more it's around getting the day started getting to work getting the kids ready for school so i've appreciated more of that kind of quiet time in the morning and and even this may sound silly to some people but 
I've taken great delight in, you know, I do French press coffee and even just hearing the, the coffee pour into a cup, it's a, just a little simple thing that I've never really stopped and listened to and appreciated. But every morning now, I kind of like enjoy looking forward to that. Second question. Uh, what's one thing you thought was important before isolation that you're happy to leave in the past? I've been cooking more at home. So I don't know if it's important, but just taking taking more time for cooking at home. Some of it's the waste that comes with going to you know, grab food and what have you. And just recognizing like that's good to kind of keep an eye on that pattern. We were cooking at home quite a lot before this, but, um, and I do miss like going to a restaurant and, and what have you, but yeah. I also, I, I'm happy to limit that because there is so much value around sitting around the dinner table or the breakfast table, or the lunch table as a family and as a, as a unit and like having those conversations and not feeling rushed and not having constant noise and whatever else happening around you. So I, I get that. I feel, I feel you on that one. What's been your most memorable moment of joy during us, during this isolation period? Probably you know, that increased time with my kids, but there was one moment I was getting ready to do a Zwift ride. And I would say like, I've also been more better at staying dedicated to doing a Pilates routine. Like I'm trying to do that three times a week in addition to riding, but I was getting ready for this one of our Zwift rides. And I was downstairs kind of getting my bike set. My daughter, her name is Holland was with me. And she said, oh, mom, you're so strong. I want to, I want to be like you. And, you know, it, it goes back to like just having a little bit more time, you know, especially, I guess, maybe with Mother's Day, that's on my mind being tomorrow, but having the, having that focus time and really embracing that time with my kids has been very special. I wish you a, an amazing Mother's Day tomorrow. I hope you have a fantastic day. I committed to having these shows every day in May. And uh, as a, as a clause in that um i had to make sure that i brought in my super mom lauren lauren phillips is going to join me tomorrow we're going to be doing a little show together uh i'm excited to to have her join me but yeah shout out to all the moms out there have an amazing day it's it may be a little bit different from what you used to with uh with mother's day and the uh, ability to celebrate with with extended family but i hope you all have a great day and katie this has been a joy to have this conversation with you i'm i'd love to pull together an inner voice trip for ingamba and come and bring a crew together and experience uh what you guys are up to once uh, once this all moves love to have you travis that'd be that'd be pretty pretty cool and and yeah. a very happy mother's day to all the moms out there and um to lauren hey take care katie see you soon Thanks, Katie. I adore your positivity in the face of adversity. I appreciate the opportunity to bring these important and interesting conversations to life. Stay tuned each and every day in May for the I'm Curious to Know project, a series of daily conversations with athletes, innovators, and unique personalities from the endurance sports world. Until next time, I'm Travis McKenzie, and this is the Inner Voice Podcast.